The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome back to the Utah Symphony Utah Opera Ghost Light Podcast, a behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm Carol Anderson. And I'm Jeff Counts. One of our goals on the Ghost Light Podcast is to highlight some of the people who make the symphonic and opera arts happen, but who rarely appear on stage. Today, we've got Jared Porter in studio with us. And honestly, if you've ever seen Jared on stage, it's because something has gone horribly wrong. Jared has been with Utah Opera for 18 seasons now and is the senior technical director for the company. Without Jared's skills, knowledge, and seemingly infinite patience, Utah Opera would never be able to get anything on stage, let alone a rare sighting of Jared himself. Welcome, Jared, to the podcast. It's good to see you, Jared, through a screen, even though I realize you're just on the other side of the building. Jared, your early days, and really many of your days, didn't involve opera at all, did they? What were some of your first experiences on stage? I especially want you to talk about your experience in choir. Well, uh, so it all started in junior high. I decided to try acting um, and was start, I was in all the musicals in junior high because they always needed men to be in the shows. Unfortunately, I am really loud and very tone deaf. Um, and so while they would... There'd be 40 kids on stage all singing. They would stop and ask me if I was singing and I'd say yes. And they would very politely ask me to just lift the words um, and not sing along because I was so bad at the actual singing. So uh, so that, that, that lasted for three years before I gave up trying to uh, be part of the onstage group. And then in high school, I went backstage. My parents gave us the option of a job or an extracurricular activity. And I decided why not do extracurricular? So I did backstage theater and I got a little allowance for working 40 hours a week backstage. So that's where it all started. I love that. And then once you finished high school, you went to high school here in Utah in Taylorsville, which is quite near Salt Lake City. Uh, what were your next steps in your theater training and going in further in this backstage career? So I had worked with a professor named Dan Guyette up at Utah State, and he recruited me to come up there and do scenic design for my bachelor's degree. Um, I went and served an LDS mission after a year, and when I came back, he had moved to Colorado, and he offered me a full-ride scholarship to move to Colorado. So I said, why not? So off to Greeley, Colorado for the University of Northern Colorado, uh, received my bachelor's there, and then... Uh, took the process on to Indiana University and received a Master's of Fine Arts in Scenic Design. And when did opera come into all of this? Because I, I feel like I wanted to say that it happened at Indiana University because Indiana is one of the foremost opera schools, but that wasn't the place, was it? No, actually, my first opera, the, the School of Music in Colorado did an opera every year, and they, they collaborated with the theater department. So I actually saw... Susanna um, was my first opera with Colorado. Um, I actually saw no operas while I worked at Indiana University. My second opera was also in Colorado, and that was Madame Butterfly. Um, and then after that, it wasn't until I came to work here that I actually saw any opera. So I did a lot of theater in Indiana, but no opera. A lot of musicals. Uh, we did summer stock out at Brown County Playhouse. So a lot of musicals, but no opera. 
not many people's intro to opera is Susanna, Jared. That's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty interesting way in. But, you know, speaking of coming back to Utah, talk about how that happened. How did you get from, you know, having to leave Utah for school and to for learn your craft to coming back here to start as, you know, as part of your professional life? So uh, stage managers for opera are transient. There really aren't many companies that have a dedicated stage manager. So one of the stage managers' name is David Grindle. He's now the president of USITT. Um, he taught stage management at Indiana University. He worked for Atlanta Opera a lot and took the job at IU to teach stage management. And when the job here as the assistant technical director opened, he said, I would be a really good fit I, uh, with my predecessor, Tim Stetler. So I applied, said, what the heck, we'll see. Uh, we really, as a family, didn't ever picture getting back to Utah or Colorado because there's more theater on the East Coast. So we figured we'd live out there and work out there. Um, and in the whole hiring process out here that took a long time, uh, it ended up being that I was offered the job after they, uh, I flew out and interviewed actually. And then three weeks later, they reposted the job and a friend uh, sent me a condolence email saying, sorry, you didn't get the job. And I was like, what are you talking about? They haven't called me. So I called them, uh, my now boss, Michelle Peterson, and she explained that the CEO at the time wanted someone with opera experience to be in that position. Uh, well, reality is a scenery is scenery, whether it's for ballet, opera, musical theater, theater, it's all the same stuff. You just don't know that, you know, Tosk is going to jump off the pirouettes at the end of the opera or not, you know, but you can figure out how to do that. Um, so... And I ended up working out for the best 18 years ago, and I've been here ever since. So, of course, Jared, we see you at the theater kind of supervising the crew, the union crew, the, the backstage magic. But you, I've, a lot of our patrons and a lot of our um, donors maybe don't realize that there's a whole scenic shop at the Utah Opera Production Studios. It's, there's so much that goes on back there that people don't realize, and some of it not even opera-related. What's all back there? <laughs> uh, there's a very large warehouse where we store the scenery that we own as a company that we rent out. Plus, we have a large shop um, that we can do woodworking and steelworking. Uh, most of the stuff we do is all original, so you can't really go buy something off the shelf. So we have to create it for the most part. Um, and then we have a big assembly bay where we can paint full-size stage drops that are 35 feet tall and 70 feet wide. Um, we have scissor lift, an overhead crane, a computer-controlled router, a bending machine for steel, uh, and then all the table saws and band saws and welders and all of those kind of fun toys to play with. I'm not going to lie. Occasionally when I need a tape measure for some random reason, I know where to go because there are a lot of tools in our building. Not only are there a lot of tools in the building, there's a lot of great people using them. And I've seen incredible stuff come out of your shop, Jared, over the years. Just incredible stuff. So let's talk about some of that stuff. I want to know a couple things. What are you most proud of? What's been the biggest challenge in terms of a build? And what's the weirdest thing anyone's asked you to do back there? Um, probably. So for us, it's all about solving the problems. Um, I would say one of the things I'm most proud of is the solutions that we came up with for Moby Dick. Um, that was, I, we've never built curved walls 30 feet tall before. So we had to build a special table that would hold the curved wall as we jigged them, put them in place. Um, 
the eye piece that lifted up at the end. That was actually one of the tricks of our trade is not being the smartest person, but knowing someone that's smarter than you and making sure they owe you a favor. So uh, that big eye piece weighs a thousand pounds. Um, it's 18 feet in diameter. And we only had 30 or 26 inches of clearance underneath it to make a lever device to lift it with. That's a lot of math that I'm not even smart enough to do. So lucky for us, we've paired with Lagoon for some different projects. So I called one of the engineers up there after two or three other engineers had told me it was impossible. Um, but their engineers at Lagoon think outside the box. And he thought outside the box and came up with a pneumatic system that drives 7,900 pounds of force. Uh, to lift that eye with a 26-inch lever arm. Um, and the other challenges were the bow piece that rotated around, so we couldn't even use the lever to go out the back of it. Everything had to be contained within it. That was kind of a fun challenge to figure out how to make that and overcome those kind of things. So that was a proud piece. Also, Bally West Nutcracker, that was a, that was a full year-long project with four scenic artists to paint all the drops um, and the proscenium portal. Those are all kind of fun things to engineer and come up with. Um, and that project turned out really well. And I want to point out, too, that this Valley West project was happening concurrently with the Moby Dick build. The engineering of Moby Dick did. Well, we started some of the building a little bit before Valley West was done. But Valley West was such the size and the scope, it took up all of the room in the assembly bay. And it's amazing, too, when you talk about that disc, this was essentially just, it was a compass rose that kind of popped open like a, like an old-fashioned pocket watch, for those of you who didn't see the show. And there was a big reveal inside the lid of that pocket watch, if you will. So uh, it was a, an event that took place over, what, about three or four minutes? It had to go up in 45 seconds and then disappear in 30 seconds. Right. So, and then it was visible for, you know, a couple of minutes on the stage action. And the amount of engineering that went into that probably four minute event. That is very typical with most things in even a musical theater, like you do forever plaid and it's the stupid arm from the record player that costs you thousands of dollars, but it's on stage for 10 seconds. You know, it's just the way it is. It's you just accept it and you move on with life. Jared, you mentioned um, using advice from people at Lagoon and for people who don't know what that is, that's a local amusement park in uh, Salt Lake City area. Um, I mean, you talked about having friends. I'm assuming based on that, that you're talking about friends literally all over the entertainment spectrum. I mean, are you often looking for favors from people who run amusement parks or other things that have nothing to do with opera? At times you are like, um, with the world of COVID, we're dealing with video projection now. Well, I am a really good carpenter. I am a really bad electrician or video person. Um, and I'll be the first one to say that. But the fact of the matter is, is there's five or six people that I know that are video experts. And so when it came down to buying projectors that the symphony uses all the time, is I called these people and said, how would you do it? What would you choose? Would you choose this option or this option? And we took their advice and we ran with it. Um, so yeah, that kind of stuff, it's, you help each other out. And when these people that are video people get stuck and they need something built, they give me a call, you know? Um, so when Ballet West needs help with something, they call me. And when I need some stuff from Ballet West, I call them, you know, it's, it's how the arts works is you have to be willing to assist each other and help each other out because money is always involved. But if you can have a friend that's willing to help, then it's always cheaper, better route to go. 
you know, a good, a sign of a good scenic shop is when you get hired by other companies to do work for them. And you guys do quite a bit of that, actually. Um, I want to circle back to the question I asked you before, which I noticed you ducked. What's the strangest thing anyone's ever asked you to make? Are there any like weird ones that you've either had to turn down or just did, you know, out of, out of protest? I don't think there's ever, there's, we've turned down work because we've been too busy doing other stuff. Um, I think the weirdest thing we've actually ever done was for Lagoon. Um, they have a dark house ride called the Terror Ride, which if you turn the lights on, the building's actually scarier than the ride is. Uh, but that was an interesting project because it's something we'd never done before. Um, we've done scenery before, but this was definitely a, a different thing. And talking with their safety engineer and the things you and I don't ever think about um, that you have to help uh, the patron not get hurt with, you know, is something within a reach distance. Can uh, How do you make it? There's a part in the ride where there's spiked doors that you hit, that you open right before you get there. Well, what happens if the spike doors don't open? You know, so we had to find, uh, it's a, we used a concrete epoxy patch that actually stays, uh, it's not rigid. So if you were to hit it, you know, it would hurt a little bit, but it's not going to break your skin. It's not going to hurt you in any way. That room also had the challenge because it's Lagoon. It's actually built on a swamp. The back part of the room there in a 30 foot distance, there was a foot difference in height in the room. And we were supposed to build this structure that's supposed to all bolt together. So we had to come up with a way to compensate for the fact that this room that for us, it was a foot difference in the corner was four feet lower. And they had actually, they were cutting open the floor for the pond effect at the end of the thing. And they cut through some wires and shorted the building out while they were doing it. But in the 1960s, when they built this the ride, they just threw the wires down on top of the dirt and then put the floor right on top of it. And nobody knew that the wiring was literally right below the subfloor that they just ran their saw through and shorted everything out. So it, it's a good thing you like solving problems, Jared, because <laughs> it sounds like you trip over them regularly. <laughs> it's kind of fun. You know, it, it gets boring when there's no problems to solve. I love talking to Jared when we've rented a set. Uh, we often build sets, but we also rent sets from other companies who've built. And I'm not going to name any companies or productions, but it's fun to watch Jared talk about what he might have done because uh, Jared's got this amazing problem-solving ability, and I just love to watch that mind work. There's 50 ways in theater to do anything, right? No one has one good way to do it. It's when you can take the 50 different ways and put them together to come up with the best solution. Um, the reality is, is I build a flat the same way they built a flat 100 years ago. I'm still using corner blocks and keystones um, just like they used to do. I'm not using a nail. I'm stapling it together. But, yeah, it's there's definitely different ways to solve different problems and you know, when the problems happen live on stage, there's different ways to solve those too. So, Have you ever had to appear on stage to fix a problem? Uh, to actually fix a problem, there's one time where the audience could have seen me fix the problem. It was uh, during Fonchula del West. Someone, okay, it was me, forgot to turn on the balcony rail monitors that the singers watched to see Maestro in. And so in the middle of the first act, everyone's like, these monitors are off, the monitors are off. And I was like, and the only way to turn them on is either from the front row of the audience, which obviously you can't do once the opera started, or this particular set had a rake stage that went pretty far downstage. So I actually 
shimmied out and climbed through the set to being downstage. There was kind of some trees and stuff in front of the set. So I shouldn't have been seen too much. Um, and I actually turned the TVs on from under the set uh, during the first act. The follow-up question, Jared, were you wearing a cowboy outfit when you did this? <laughs> no, I was not wearing a cowboy outfit. I was wearing black, so you can't see me because we're ninjas backstage. <laughs> the last time we did Carmen, this is something that the audience never saw. The chorus did see. Uh, we were We had filled the pedal bag that's used later in the show, but right at the top of the show, the flyman had raised the pedal bag up, but not all the way up out of sight lines. So right as the, uh, what's it called when they start the show? Overture. The overture. I was like, I know it starts with an O. Anyway, <laughs> overture. As soon as the overture started, the flyman went to adjust this bag full of pink paper pedals and dumped the entire contents onto the full stage behind the curtain. The overture for Carmen is three minutes and 18 seconds long. It took us exactly three minutes and 18 seconds to get all of the pedals off stage and the chorus on stage for the top of the show without the audience ever knowing that there was 12 people backstage running and bustling and trying to clean up this entire mess that happened the second the music started and there was no way to stop the train once it started. Those are those moments that make for good stories afterwards, yeah. over the ghost light, if you will. Jared, you also used to do, I was a little bit obsessed with this, you used to design and build Sundance award sets. Mm -hmm. Did you ever have any fun, I mean, yeah, talk about those, but also I wanna know if you ever had any fun celebrity sightings during your uh, load-ins for those. Uh, so during the awards ceremony, when I was at the tennis club, we would build the sets for that. We never ran into any big stars during load-in because that's when the working people are there schmucking stuff around and putting stuff together and, and working in the cold because it's always in January and there's a lot of snow in Park City. Uh, but uh, Quentin Tarantino was an MC for one of the shows and he mocked our scenery. Um, and... The guy off of Wild Hogs, uh, the one that can't ride the motorcycle. Can't remember his name. Travolta, William H. Macy. William H. Macy. So William H. Macy was the MC, and Quentin Tarantino uh, was delivering a award or something, and it was this year they had done this Western theme, and there was three giant poles uh, that hold up the ceiling of the building that we had made giant cactuses to surround them with that were made out of fabric. Um and so Quentin Tarantino talked about these dancing cactuses um, and how they would only work in Utah or Arizona. Uh, and he just wasn't impressed with them. But he mentioned our scenery. I thought that was pretty good. Um, and William H. Macy talked, there were some covered wagons we had built that they had uh, non-pioneer girls dancing in, would be an appropriate way to say it. Uh, and he was like, boy, you wouldn't see that on the trails 200 years ago in Utah. So... Uh, I, can't, I ever met any of the big stars, but I did run into a few of them as far as they were there working while I was. And, you know, they say, and we could apply this in this case, no, no press is worse than bad press. And in this case, Quentin Tarantino's mocking is better than Quentin Tarantino not noticing. That's right. <laughs> well, I think a lot of people have noticed what you've done over the years, Jared. The, the work of you and your team is really incredible, every bit as important as 
the work of a librettist or a soprano or even the conductor. So thank you so much for all the great work over the years. We can't let you go though without asking a question that we ask all of our opera people. And it's this, is there a subject, real, imagined, anything that you think absolutely has to be made into an opera? So to be completely fair, I don't like opera. <laughs> I, I, okay, let me rephrase. I don't like classical opera. You okay. know, they get out there and sing about her dying for three hours. It's like, just die already. Um, I like, um, to be honest, the, the, the shows that have really grasped me the most are like Grapes of Wrath, Silent Night, Mice and Men, um, The Long Walk real common human stories that happen to real people, those are things that, and they're modern, they're more contemporary opera rather than the historical stuff. Um, those shows mean the most to me. I love to see the common person and how they deal with things. You know, The Long Walk was such a touching piece and to meet the guy that wrote the book, um, it was amazing just to hear his story. We all know the story of Silent Night and to see it portrayed the way it was, I. It was just a touching piece and Grapes of Wrath. Um, it was just beautiful. I, I love to see the human conflict stories that aren't necessarily 300 years old. You know, I wasn't around during the Great Depression, but the way that whole production pulled things off, amazing. So for me, it's real life human interest stories uh, in the contemporary settings. Well, Jared, I mean, I see you daily, of course. I consider you a great colleague, but it's great to sit down and really talk about what's going on back there besides just seeing uh, one of your uh, staff members painting or building. So thanks for coming in and just really talking so frankly about what goes on back there. And thanks for all the great work you do to make Utah Opera Production so successful. Uh, you're welcome. Thanks. It's always a team effort. Be sure to visit utahsymphony.org and utahopera.org for information about upcoming performances. And if you haven't yet, it would really help us if you would subscribe, rate, and review this show wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us get new listeners. Until next time, I'm Jeff Counts. And I'm Carol Anderson. Thanks for listening. The Ghostlight Podcast is produced and edited by Robert Bedont. The Utah Symphony Utah Opera season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation. <laughs>